Welcome to another episode of Finding Peaks. My name is Jason Friesma. I'm the Chief Clinical Officer here at Peaks Recovery. To my left is the founder and president and good friend, Chris Burns. Hey, everybody. And uh, I could not be more excited about our guest today. Uh, Monte Ball uh, has, has joined us. Uh, Monte, for those who don't know, let me, let me tell you, this, this is a great guy. He is a two-time consensus All-American uh, in 2011 and 2012. He also was uh, the second round pick of my favorite team, the Denver Broncos, back in 2013. <laughs> he also held the record for the uh, most career rushing touchdowns in NCAA Division I. Unfortunately, that was passed, I think, a couple years later, but you had it for a while, and then uh, a finalist for the Heisman Trophy uh, in 2011, I think along with Andrew Luck and a couple other guys that are kind of household names. So um, with that, Monte, welcome. Welcome to Finding Peaks. Wow, thank you. This is uh, thank you for the introduction. I'm, I'm again. It's always an honor, and uh, it's a, a privilege to to get asked to talk and uh, just uh, share some space with with some folks. So thank you for having me. Yeah, I, it is it is my pleasure, and um, and really, actually, I lived for a while in Wisconsin when I was a kid. So I, I grew up kind of a Badgers fan, and then um, and a Colorado Buff fan, if I'm going to be honest. And then, uh, but Denver Broncos, I bleed orange and blue, man, and. Uh, and when I had the privilege of kind of getting to know you a little better uh, back in January at the Winter Symposium here in Colorado Springs, um, I was really excited to talk to you, but um, really pleased to find out that uh, you're an even better guy than you are a football player, if, if I do say so myself. And, um, but it, it's been a journey for you, I think. So um, it, how about if you kind of talk about your experience of playing for uh, a Big Ten, how'd you pick Wisconsin? Maybe we start there, yeah. Oh, that's uh, I love the fact that you mentioned that you bleed blue and orange. Yeah. I uh, growing up right outside St. Louis, Missouri, I've been a Broncos fan my entire life. Yeah, grew up with my room uh, all the way from once I started playing football, the age of eight till obviously high school when I took off to Wisconsin. Yeah, uh, excuse me, uh, after high school, I uh, my room was blue and orange, Broncos stuff all <laughs> over, and I wanted to be a Bronco my entire life. Uh, cool. our, our rooms probably look similar, except for the players on my wall were like Steve Watson and John Elway <laughs> and like, you know, uh, Atwater. At yeah. So, yeah. Those are the guys that uh, I fell in love with the sport because of because of those names right there. But to your question, I mean, man, obviously my story, right, it's uh, it starts with the game of football. It starts with the game of football at the age of eight, obviously with Little League football, my father being my coach. Um, it was uh, one of those things where we as a family were just like, look, um, if this is something you want to do, right, this is a sport that you want to play, then let's go all in. Let's, let's go all in. And, um, and of course, I can sit here and go through play by play year by year. But once I got to high school, once my family really started to see that I was really excelling at this sport, right, like, okay, he may have opportunities to play at the next level, that being collegiate, the collegiate level. My family, as close as we are, they made a plan. We all made a plan when I was 13, 14 years old that um, if you continue to do what you're doing in school, right, hanging around the right people and obviously excelling in the football field, then we will pack up our home and we will move to the backyard of whichever campus you select. Uh -huh. And my family did that my freshman year at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So how did I come about choosing UW? Yeah. Um, I narrowed it down my choices uh, from Stanford, Iowa, and Wisconsin. Um, Stanford, uh, at the, at the time I had a phone call with Harbaugh when he was there. And of course I was pretty jacked about it and, and everything. But then I, 
sort of uh, disqualified in a sense. Uh, I'd rather say they, they didn't make the cut just due to uh, geographically speaking. I didn't want to be too far from the Midwest. I'm a Midwestern guy. Um, and of course, they were talking about some AP classes that I had to take my senior. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I was like yeah, you know, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. But um, narrative from Iowa and Wisconsin. And of course, when Sean Green was there, right, running at Iowa, that was a guy that I really liked. I really watched him. I really loved their pro style offense, something that we ran in high school, of course. Hmm. Took two, two visits there. Great, great place, right? Great, great university um, with sports, education as well, location. But once I took my first and only visits at the time to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, it was a night game against Ohio State. Um, and I mean, come Big on. Big Ten football. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's yeah, I mean, come on. I was, I was, you know, of course, they teamed me up with a couple players, right? Obviously, player personnel. Um we uh, went to the game, obviously. Well, obviously the players were playing, but um, I was just hanging around the coaches and the player personnel guy, and I was like, this is this is it. This is the stage that I want to play on. 90,000 people screaming. Beautiful scenery, right? You got It's an isthmus, Madison is. You're looking at two lakes, a lake on each side. The education, I was like, this is a good fit. Not too far from the St. Louis area, a five-and-a-half, six-hour drive. So I was like, this is this this works out well for me. And that's how it happened. I sat there and I was like, you know what? I want to be a Badger. I want to be better. This is what I thought in the moment. I want to be better than Ron Dane. I want to, <laughs> I want to be that guy. And so I, uh, it was a, it was a pretty quick decision, easy decision for me. And um, I'm glad I made that choice. Nice. Any, uh, I was just thinking when you, when you were checking in there, Monte, is as you, as you rolled through um, your earlier years in sport and school, did you have any issues with mental health? Was there any mental health issues that came up when you were kind of engaging in your football career? Because I know that can be pretty intense and all-encompassing, but did you recognize any of that early on? Early on, no. I, I would say in high school, you know, things are, you know, I'm, I'm a big wide-eyed eyed guy. I, things were going great in high school, right? Great. Uh, but once I got to college, of course, once those stressors started to come about, um, that being school, that being um, obviously just a bigger stage, right? More pressures that come along with performing now, um, I didn't really understand those stresses until my junior year. So my freshman and sophomore year, I didn't really play a lot. I was behind um, John Clay, my freshman year, and another guy. But then my sophomore year, we got this we got this little scat back out of Florida, St. Aquinas down there, um, St. Thomas Aquinas, excuse me, um, James White. And I actually was behind him because he had a 1,000-yard season his freshman year. Yeah, and yeah. so going into – the second half of my sophomore season, I was third string, and we went to Iowa to play the Hawkeyes, right? Kinnick Stadium, very hostile environment. Unfortunately, uh, those two running backs that I mentioned, John Clay and James White, suffered an injury. And I remember the running backs coach turning around and looking at me and saying, it, it's, it's time to put up or shut up. Yeah. <laughs> put me in the game, and I remember it was fourth quarter. I caught up a slant route, fourth and two extended the chains, and then two plays later, later scored the game-winning touchdown and never gave the position back. Nice. And from that moment, I bring that up because that's when those stressors really started to hit me come junior year when we were fortunate enough to get Russell Wilson. The pressures were there. Obviously, I was excelling on the field. I, I dove headfirst straight into the partying atmosphere, right? Um, and, of course, in hindsight, I know that I did that now because – 
I was dealing with those stresses of, okay, how am I going to manage school? How am I going to manage, you know, being present in my family? Obviously, uh, football, that how demanding it is. My body is tired. I'm, 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 I'm dealing with trying to just go to class and not raise my hand because I just don't want for people to know I'm in there. All those social anxieties were really getting to me. And obviously, as we know, that alcohol is a slippery slope and really took me into that depression, right? Um, I felt that it was my best friend. I started to really develop that relationship with the bottle my junior year in college. And many people don't know this. Uh, my junior year in college was my best year on the field, but it was actually my worst year off the field mentally. Yeah, and, I, and it seems like we, we kind of talk, I, I get this language from a guy named TJ Woodward who wrote the book Conscious Recovery. He talks about um, alcohol being a brilliant strategy to kind of cope with your stressors. And and and, and you you illustrate this perfectly that, you know, you had your best year as a running back, obviously your Heisman finalist, but really on the inside, like for a minute, you're getting away with it. Like it's working. Yeah. Exactly. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I talk about that all the time now where it's I now when I look back, it's it's almost now I wish that I would have like experienced a decline on the football field. So I would have saw those red flags. Right. And done a self-diagnostic check of, OK, what's going on? What am I doing? I must not be taking care of my body off the field. I must not be hanging around the right people, right? Being present, et cetera, right? But that's not the case. I was excelling even more on the football field and nothing was really showing me in the moment, at least what I think now, nothing was really showing me that I need to make some changes. And so when I always talk to people about that, I say it, it's alcohol is, is an addiction, period. Any type of addiction, obviously drugs and or alcohol, it's it's so tricky how it works and how it just preys on your mind and shows you things that really aren't the truth, just so that it can continue to be your best friend. And obviously hindsight in 2020, I'm able to say that now, but in the moment I was uh, thought that I was living my best life. Yeah, and you bring up such a phenomenal point too, I think for the viewers, and it's important to see, it's like, because in my recovery before I ever got into the party scene or picked up a drink for myself, you know, I, I suffered a tremendous amount of anxiety. My right leg sat there and did this. And the first time I drank it, whoo, cooled me out. And I like how you mentioned that because the anxiety came first and the partying came second. And it's hard to get enough. I, I quote Dr. Gabor Mate all the time, but it's with that stuff, it's, all, it's hard to get enough of something that almost works, you know? And it, he says that all the time and I'm like, that not that the truth? And the only thing that works better is an authentic recovery process of which we're in now. But the question I have for you is, when you're on the college campus, now I know today in 2023, it's far different than 2011 with respect to mental health awareness. But is there a lot of that kind of talk? Are there resources? Do, is, it, is there anybody outspoken about this? Because it seems like it's a huge issue, not just on college campuses, but really everywhere and for all college students. Great question. And I, and I think you nailed it where it's, it's of course, back then and back then as if it was that long ago. So 10, 12 years ago, there were resources, of course, but I believe that there wasn't that much of a there. There wasn't a stage right for people or rather someone really saying we need to do this for our student athletes. Mm -hmm. Right. Or rather a staff member really just coming out and about and saying, okay, I'm going to talk with the, the leadership and we're going to allocate funds to this program. 
that really wasn't going on during that time. And of course, I only know Wisconsin. And, and again, I'm not saying that Wisconsin dropped the ball on that because they most definitely did not. Um, I'm just mentioning this because I think once Kevin Love came out and spoke about what he was dealing with, right, someone of that of, at, at that level, I think it really just blew open these doors, right, of, okay, wait, what are we doing for our student athletes? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what are we, of course, just our athletes in general, but when student athletes, like what sort of programs do we have for them? What sort of messaging are we providing for them? And I think back then that wasn't the case, but just like you mentioned today in 2023, that is for sure the conversations that are happening. And I think that it's great that it's happening better late than never. Yeah. And I, I just feel like we, we that you can't have too much of this conversation, right, of, of talking about what it is that you're doing off the field. Who are you spending your time around? What are some of the things, stressors that you're dealing with? Here are some resources that are right here in your backyard for you. Right. And just a simple conversation like that can, as you both know, right, can help out so many people and alleviate so much tension and stress within folks' lives. Yeah, Absolutely. No, I really appreciate that response. And it's, it's nice to know too that at least we're turning the corner with a lot of that stuff. Um, it can be really difficult when you get to college campus, I'm sure, and you'll talk about this, but you get a, as you start accomplishing all these things, I can remember being close to, you know, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, so I was close to the University of Arizona Wildcat program. Not their football team, but their basketball team. And I remember being a kid and just, if I could get into their space two feet away from them, they were so revered. I mean, people just look up and praise, and a young athlete like myself really looks up to people like yourself. And so I have to imagine, and I was chatting with Jason a little bit before the show, in addition to the lack of resources, even just 10 short years ago, um, you have this issue with um, a lot of uh, not only anxiety that comes up as a result of the pressure, but you have a lot of what we call kind of, I hate to say this word, but yes men around you. You get a lot of people that are just like, and I was the same way. I'm like a groupie for athletes. You know, I love watching great athletes perform and getting behind them, and I praise everything they do. And that has to be an interesting inflection point when you're going through, um, you know, some of the partying and some of the drinking and the anxiety, and then everybody's praising you. There's oftentimes a narrative inside, and I think you maybe mentioned it, um, how alcohol tends to lie to you, but a narrative that we keep going that there's nothing wrong here. You know? Yeah, you, that that's I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I I talk about that so much and and I always preface it with I understand how how the public may not be able to digest that immediately to understand that that fame can bring so many stressors in your life right because when you think about fame you think of money you think of like life is great right it, it's all it's all good but just like you said right you get those people around you that are just yes men, right? They just, they don't, there's no guardrails for you, right? And, and, and when I speak on this, especially when I speak to elementary students and obviously high school students, I talk about your friendships. They are so important because not only are you trying to uplift your friend, right? You're trying to tell them, you're trying to have, help them accomplish their goal, goals. They should be doing the same for you, right? They should be challenging you saying, hey, maybe this is something you shouldn't be doing. Maybe we should go this direction, right? Those are friends. Those are friendships. When you yeah, get to yeah. that stardom level, when things are going great, right? When the money, the the women, the the everyone loves you, you get that crowd that, for one, just loves what you're able to provide for them in the partying atmosphere. 
And also, two, just people who just love to say that they're near you, they're by you, that they're friends with you, but don't really care about what it is that you're doing to your body or what where you're spending your time at. And of course, obviously, you have your own autonomy, right? It's up to you to figure that out. But your social atmosphere is extremely important as well. And so, yeah, you nailed it where it's it's when that fame came my junior year, um, I wasn't prepared for it. Um, I really wasn't where going to class and, and having people bombard me, right, to, for photos or, or, or autographs and then being pulled in this direction for interviews, being pulled in that direction where it's like I, at moments I just wanted to be a student. I just wanted to be just present in the moment and just go to class and just be. But um, that fast track lifestyle um, not being prepared for it's obviously set myself up for for a crash so then monte to just keep advancing your story so then you have this tremendous season in 2011 and you're a heisman finalist and obviously you could have gone into the draft at that point probably and been drafted relatively high and uh started your professional career what brought you back to wisconsin for your senior year um again i'm an open book and uh for me it was uh i the main reason that talking to my agent, I just didn't feel prepared yet. Although looking back on it, I should have left. Mm-hmm. But um, to be honest, I, 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 I didn't want to leave the partying yet. Mm-hmm. I didn't as, as you know, I, I kicked myself in the butt for that. Um, I did, but I felt comfortable in my scene of, of partying and obviously excelling on the field and, and just being around the people that I was around. Um, and so to the point of an addiction, right, um, I, I felt comfortable drowning out my anxieties and stressors in the area that I was in. Um, I did not want to move on. I didn't, I wasn't ready yet. And, uh, and of course I think things would, things may have been different if I, if I would have left for the draft in 2011, after yeah. the 2011 season, but it's, um, I felt comfortable. I felt comfortable, um, drowning myself out with alcohol. Yeah, that, that makes sense, man. And obviously you had a great 2020, 2012 season as well uh, and set you up to be drafted um, by your favorite team. I mean, that seems like a dream come true in a lot of ways to, to like get to come to Denver and, uh, you know, get a chance to play, get on the field at Mile High, man. That's so cool. Absolutely. And again, I, I, I of course, uh, there's a, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for the opportunities that I've had. There are way more great moments than bad moments, of course, but I do believe that, again, when I share my story, we have to share it all. And I did struggle mentally um, in 2011 and 2012, but it was still excelling on the field and was able, yes, to get drafted by my favorite team. Um, I still remember the day I I chose, I did not want to go to New York um, for the draft because you can only have like a plus one or whatever, a plus two, yeah. and I wanted to have my family and friends, right, um, to celebrate this moment. And so I just uh, rented out um, a banquet room in, um, in a hotel in Madison, Wisconsin, and knew that I wasn't going to go first round, although I rented it out for those two days. So I was like, ah, guys, first round, most likely not. But day two came about, my agent was like, all right, you most definitely should get picked up in, in round two or three today. And of course, as I'm sitting there, everyone's having a good time behind me. My anxieties are through the roof. Uh, my phone is propped up. And a 303 number came in. And of course, with an iPhone, it said Denver, Colorado. And I jumped up out of my seats. Uh, I started hitting my dad. (laughs) He jumped up looking for my mom. I turned around. My mom was behind me. She was already crying. 
Uh, <laughs> and I answered the phone, and it was John Elway. And, um, you know, at the age of 21, 22 at the time, 22, uh, getting a phone call from John Elway. And, of course, he said, uh, would you like to be a Bronco? And I just tears everywhere. I'm like, dude, I just I just did it. I yeah, just cool. And um, and of course, in this moment, I always share this where it's yes, there were times in college where my family, they were like, OK, we, let's have some conversations with him because we see some things are going a little differently for him um, within his personality. Um, but of course, I didn't want to listen to my family. Right. I was like, no, everything's fine. I'm good. And so I bring that up because once I was drafted, it was almost like that moment where I looked at my family and I was like, see, look, I told you I got this under control. Huh. Everything mm -hmm. is fine. Yeah. Everything is fine. I do not have a strong relationship with alcohol because if I did, I wouldn't be drafted by my favorite team. And so it was, uh, there were times when I could have changed, I guess, or made some, made some different choices. But um, again, excelling um, on the football field didn't, I didn't open my eyes to that. But, yes, drafted to my favorite team, was able to obviously come to Denver, Colorado, land there. And um, I remember meeting all the guys. And, of course, I was starstruck meeting Von Miller, meeting all these other greats, right? Champ Bailey was still on the team during then. And my dad was a huge Bailey fan, uh, <laughs> huge. But, of course, when I had the opportunity to meet Peyton Manning, uh, that, that's very difficult to explain. Yeah. Um when you come across a, a person, a player like that uh, for the first time, being young myself, and I remember the first thing I said to him, I was like, dude, I was, I remember I was like 12 playing Madden 02 or whatever it was, <laughs> and I'm playing with you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so dream come true, absolutely. Most definitely a dream come true. Yeah, was it, when you transitioned from, and I appreciate you checking in with that, what it, what it I mean, I'll, I'll probably never sit in the presence of someone else who has that type of story. But when you, when you transition from Wisconsin that senior year, I'm, I'm assuming you had a pretty thick peer group around you. Whether they were right size or not, you had this counterbalancing opportunity to kind of brush into some peers. And Did you feel like when you transitioned to Denver Broncos, because um, I have this story in my recovery where I'm surrounded with a lot of people and a lot of great things, but I feel so alone and so isolated. Did you start to feel that disconnection pretty quickly or was it... Um, did it take some time? Because now you're a professional and the college scene kind of moves away. And so that it almost looks like, it almost feels like a leg of the table gets pulled out and now you're holding up your table with two hands. Yeah, yeah, I like that. It's, uh, yes, to your point, it, it hit me pretty quickly um, because it was almost as if I, I, I packed up my, my, my best friend, my alcoholism in, in my luggage and, and took it with me, carried it with me to Colorado because it was something that I never addressed. And so, of course, I didn't think that I had to address it. But if, but being 22 with now going from $40 in my bank account to X amount of dollars in my bank <laughs> accounts, it's, it's I can go anywhere on the planet now. I can, you know, those life pitfalls are, are, are right there, right there. They're greater. And so for me, I dove head first into that because I felt lonely. I did feel lonely. Um, I didn't have any family here, of course. I didn't have anyone to lean on. So I thought. Um, and I just did not take care of my body. I didn't. Um, and, and I always tell people it was most definitely a, a wonderful opportunity to even put on the uniform um, as a Bronco. Um, I do wish that my career would have went differently, but um, I always joke around and say, you know, I can joke around about it now, but I joke around and say, you know, I had a cup of coffee with the Broncos. It was <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. But uh, being able to play side by side with those names that I mentioned, right? Um, I still have some friends to this day who are on the team, right? They're going to be lifelong friends to me. Um, and obviously playing in the Super Bowl my rookie year in New York City, obviously we we, we lost. But again, oh, yes. just to, to play against uh, Russell Wilson was, um, yeah. again, a, a dream come true. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I always forget that you played in the Super Bowl. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> man, you kind of accomplished it all. And even though you did a coffee break with the Broncos, man, you've really, you really connected with a lot. I mean, we're a part of a lot of, um, a lot of winning at the very least. Absolutely. And, and, and seriously, man, it's, I always, it's, it's such a blessing looking back on it and talking about it because when I talk to children in elementary schools and in high schools that being teens, I talk about this, the power of manifestation, right? Um, you know, what are the chances of, of an eight-year-old telling his father that I want to be a running back for the Denver Broncos and play in the Super Bowl and then get drafted by them? And I remember I tweeted out the photo of me wearing the jersey and then being able to play in a Super Bowl my rookie year, right? So I always talk about this power of manifestation, which just comes from within, right, of do not let anyone try to tell you you can't do anything. That, that's, that's really what it comes down to. Do not let anyone tell you you can't do anything because as cliche as it sounds, if you set your mind to it, you can accomplish it. And, and, I, and, I, and I tell them, I'm one, I, I, I did it. So you can do it as well. And so the, I have so many messages that I share um, around addiction recovery and power of manifestation and obviously, of course, mental health. Um, but it's, it's, it's something that I, I, I don't take lightly. So Monte, I think that brings us to what, what was, kind of your low moment like what what made you be like you know what actually I gotta look in the mirror and make some changes because this isn't going right yeah yeah that, that's a that's a very easy decision so once I my second year as a Bronco um I tore my groin against the Cardinals home game and we had the St. Louis Rams when they were in St. Louis uh about six weeks seven weeks out so of course right back at home I tried to rush back PT yeah. right I was like let's go let's go let's get more PT I got to get back for this game first game of the St. Louis game when they were in St. Louis tore my groin again and then placed on IR mm. well placed on IR I only had to be at the facility for two hours a day and I did not travel with the team so of course I had all this freedom mm. that I obviously utilized to, to party and to drink, of course. And so that moment, I would say in, that's in 2014 in November mm -hmm. is when I really hit that low, which I thought it was the lowest part, but it wasn't. There was most definitely a basement that I didn't know about. So <laughs> come 2015, I sort of saw the writing on the wall, right? That's I'm on the chopping block. I was getting a lot of playing time during the uh, preseason games, yeah. um, a lot of playing time. And I was not like, a good oh. sign. <laughs> well, it's definitely not a good sign. Yeah. Yeah. Was, okay, I'm, I'm on, I'm, I'm 50, 51, 52, 53, right? Uh, they, they are, I, I, I'm, I'm on the chopping block. And so I saw the writing on the wall, so I started to panic, right? Like, I, I know that it's gonna happen. Where am I gonna go? Well, obviously once the day happened that I was released, um, not a good day for me. Um, not a good day for me at all. Um, but then, of course, I was picked up by the Patriots, put on the P squad, and just didn't have the opportunity um, really to to get on that, to get on the playing. Uh, excuse me, the active roster. Um, and of course, the Broncos sent us home uh, <laughs> uh, and went on to play the Panthers in the Super Bowl. So, of course, my bottom would have been around that time, the basement where 
I was angry at every single person around me. Um, everyone. Um, I was I was having outbursts uh, to my family, um, especially my dad. Um, I was uh, just not a good brother, not a good son, not a good friend, and of course, not a good boyfriend um, at that time. And so every single person around me at the end, December to February of 2015, 2016, um, you know, received a very angry Monte. I was angry at everyone else except myself because, of course, in that moment with alcohol, I was blaming the coaching staff. I was blaming the play calling. I was blaming everything else except what I'm doing off the field. Hmm. How serious was I taking it? And I wasn't taking it serious enough, of course. So in the moments, of course, with that anger, with the alcohol, with the, I felt embarrassed, right? Um, released from my favorite team after two seasons. Um, I took that frustration out on someone very close to me who trusted me. Um, and it took a very long time for me to forgive myself for that. Um, and uh, of course, an open book, um, a domestic violence situation that happened in a hotel in Madison, Wisconsin. <clears throat> um, of course, I was completely uh, blacked out drunk and sort of came to when I was um, in jail um, over the weekend. So I was arrested on a Friday, like at 2 a.m. And of course, had to stay the weekend over jail to see the judge on Monday. And of course, on Sunday, I watched uh, the Broncos beat the Panthers in Super Bowl 50 while I was in jail. Um, and I remember the room, uh, the cellmates that were in there with me uh, were saying, you know, that's supposed to be you up there. You're supposed to be a role model to us, a role model to our youth. Um, and I remember in the moment, I was like, okay, this is the, the popcorn, the kettle black. We are literally, <laughs> literally in the same spot. Yeah. spot. Maybe different yeah. charges in the same like, spot. Yeah. But, I, but I do remember turning around, right, and uh, facing the wall, because, of course, I didn't want to watch the game. Um, and I, uh, you know, I, I started tearing up because they're right. They're right. Um, I, I, I had opportunities that many folks haven't had um of course dealing with an addiction but i had resources that i could have leaned on um not blaming myself right for not utilizing them but there were moments where i could have i could have uh you know changed my path and so uh that's a moment that will always stick with me that's that's the bottom that's the basement of the basement of my bottom when my feet hit that cold floor i'll never forget that feeling of that jail cell uh i literally told myself what the heck is going on like, how do I go from just two years ago, literally just 24 months ago, 26 months ago, to getting drafted to now in jail? And so uh, that was the moment where I'm like, okay, so obviously something's not right. Yeah. So how, how did you then work on yourself? And I'm, I'm trying to be mindful of time, and I'm sure it's a, a bigger story that we can fit in right here. But like, yeah, so the, yeah, no, like, okay. So yeah, talk about how you got, how you started to come out of that basement. That's a that's a basement. Yeah, I'm very fortunate. Uh, you know, I, I I'm blessed, I should say, to to have a really good, you know, nuclear family. I guess uh, my my parents and my sisters were were very close, um, very close, and uh, they fed it to me straight. They said, "You need to stop drinking. Um, look at what just happened. You are acting uncharacteristically. Something you have never engaged in before." And now look at what has happened, not only to your football career, but obviously your image of just trying to get a job um, after the game is over. And so for me, it was uh, it was difficult at first of, of wanting to listen, right, to be receptive to those words. Um, 
but I would say it took me about six weeks to really say, okay, um, I, I, I need to go speak to someone. Um, and so I jumped into uh, intensive outpatient, I jumped into IOP um, four days a week for those three hours a day, yep, for eight weeks. Um, and then after that, of course, it was individual therapy, group therapy as well, and family. Where after that, then I just took off with just individual therapy with my therapist who I still see to this day. Um, and that was in 2016. Of course, the the frequency was higher, but obviously now I see him about once a month, um, but he's, he's my guy. And so for me, I know that there are a million ways up this hill, right? Um, but I'm a strong advocate for um, obviously IOP, um, what all goes into IOP, right? Individual therapy, group therapy, family therapy. Um, that is something that I wanted. It took time for me to get into that, but with my family pushing me into that door, um, I was able to do it right there in the heart of Madison, Wisconsin. Wow, what a, what a humbling experience to walk in there. And it just speaks to your willingness to enter into that recovery process. And too, I can relate a lot to the early stages, and I'm always gonna be the guy to throw compassion in the middle of your story, but you know, it's, it's really difficult sometimes to find the means to, uh, or an access point to get help. I mean, it's the last thing. I, we meet people oftentimes in much, much more arduous situations that are like, what do you see here? But I think our brains do this really unique thing is they keep us really safe. And so I can really relate to, your, to the onset of the, that, tr that basement, which is like, this is your fault. And we go into anger because to go, in, to go into the truth, which is I feel hurt, I'm sad, I'm broken, I'm hopeless, that's to come apart. And so I can really relate to really coming out, especially before I got into recovery, with a lot of anger and a lot of rage and how did I get here? And I just wanted to throw that out there for you too because... Um, I think sometimes I think I think sometimes we get into kind of like blaming and shaming ourselves in these initial phases because we didn't see it clearly, but to see it clearly sometimes is not as safe as one might lead lead themselves to believe. Absolutely, I mean that that's exactly what it is. I was I was hurt, right? I but I didn't know how to process that hurt. Yeah. What do I mean hurt? <laughs> I my entire life up until that point, right? It was you don't wear my feelings on my sleeve or wear my heart on my sleeve, right? Anger. Per, produced great numbers yeah. for me um, and so i really developed a great relationship with anger because when i was angry on the field we won when i was angry on the field i had a great game um and you know i'm not blaming the sports of course but that is what i was that's what i developed that's what i that's what that was me and so of course that bled over into my life and that was the only emotion that i was comfortable with expressing when i was hurt when I was sad, when I knew that, okay, no one forced me to take a drink. No one forced me to to uh, be a, a terrible person to my partner, right? Um, I didn't want to face the music in the moment. And so the anger was easy. Anger was easy to, to show. Yeah, absolutely. I can totally relate to that. Yeah. How, how did you... When did you discover that, hey, this is maybe some depression going on? It, it's not just the alcohol, but like there's other things going on here. It didn't, all that didn't go away when you quit drinking. Like you, you have a long path of doing IOP and therapy and like uh, obviously it wasn't just about the drinking. Sure. Um, I didn't learn anything about that until that process, right? Because I think, you know, growing up, I obviously, I obviously knew of the word depression, but I didn't know any signs of depression, what may or may not go into your depression. Um, and so I learned all that 
throughout the process of therapy. And of course, and of course, that process was like peeling back the onion, right? Uh, getting more raw, raw, so many more emotions coming out of me. And I, I was able to look back and say, wow, I, I was depressed when I was forcing myself to smile during interviews just so that my parents wouldn't 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 know that something was wrong with me right i always thought about that during interviews smile smile look good right look happy just so they think that i'm happy right um i never thought about that until the therapeutic process that i was in and so for me that depression in hindsight i know for a fact was playing a huge part in my downfall starting in 2011 um when i felt a lot more comfortable being isolated Yep, being isolated. I wasn't one to consume a significant amount of alcohol while I was by myself, but that process started in 2011 in my bedroom in my uh, in a, the apartment that I was in, and so I that's when that depression really started to to get me. And of course, it was a snowball. Right after that, the more I started to drink, the further I went down it. Um, I started to push my family away. Started to make up excuses of not going to their house for dinner. Um, and just because I, I knew that my mom would know. Um, and so that's, that's that therapeutic process to me as I, as I talk about it is, uh, I'm sitting here thinking about it. For me going in completely oblivious to how it was gonna be, I was under the impression, and of course every therapist does it differently. I, I was lucky enough to match the first try with, with a great therapist, but I thought that the conversation was gonna be you know, 95% about the bottle, 5% about relationships, but it was completely yeah. flipped. Completely flipped. We talked a lot about my relationships with my family, which I have great relationships with, uh, my friends as well. Um, and of course, the most important, my relationship with myself. Yeah. And um, and I, I did not, I did not feel good about myself. I didn't. I did not feel good about myself because I, I, I felt like I would leave, you know, left my family, let my let my family down in moments. Of course, obviously, once the the really big fall happened, that's what I felt that I let them down, that I harnessed our name, that I'm a terrible human being. But um, that therapeutic process really allowed for me to to heal, man, to heal. And of course, I always share this: I'm not the victim. Um, I I still to this day pray that the person that I harmed is on their healing process. I have made amends, um, but I, I, I know that I'm not the victim in the act that I committed, um, but there were things that I was really struggling with internally. Yeah, I wanna, I mean, I'm just sitting here and I'm looking at all these accomplishments on the left side of our screen here, and I just wanna be one of the first to just affirm you for what I think is your greatest accomplishment, which is being in long-term recovery, having overcome the adversity you did, and the message you're putting out into this world is profound, my friend. Um, from the bottom of my heart, just thank you. Thank you for what you're doing to make movement, not just in your world, but everybody's world. I think this energy that you're creating is significant and it has a ripple effect that ultimately, and, and in my opinion, maybe much better than being a running back for the Denver Broncos, changes the world one day at a time. So thank you, man. thank you. I hear so many stories of, you know, this person left the league because he dealt with substances. You never hear about him again. Yeah. These stories don't happen often and I just, I feel so honored to be graced with your presence and your energy and your motivation and your spirit and your story and your path. It's, it's, uh, it's contagious. It's contagious. Thank yeah. you so much for that. It's, um, I, I say that I, you know, now I, I see what I'm here for. 
Um, I really, and I really mean this. I, I know that, of course, obviously, yes, my dream was to wear the gold jacket, right? And be in the yeah. Hall of Fame um, in, in Canton, right? But I know for a fact and strongly believe that I was given that stage to speak on something way greater than myself, something that every single human being on the face of this planet is either indirectly or directly impacted by, whether it's themselves or someone they love. And and that's that's my mission, period. 32 years old, and until the day I'm in the ground, this will be my mission. I love it. I, I love it too, Monte. And I think, you know, to your point too, Chris, like so many people, you know, have this struggle and then, yeah, they disappear. And they don't use this as an opportunity to say, uh, courageously that there's a path forward through this. And really, honestly, the, the irony too is it does help the shame to tell your story. It doesn't necessarily feel great all the time, but like um, there's so much power, Monte, in what you said, and so much is relatable. And, and you don't have to be a Heisman finalist to feel like you've let your family down or to feel like you're the worst person on the planet or you've tarnished your family name. That's common to a lot of people and, and walking through that and learning how to forgive yourself and then love yourself again, that relationship uh, I think can be so incredibly powerful. Um, with, yeah, with, a, with our last couple minutes like, or moments, like if you could just share about your book that you wrote, I think pretty recently, uh, in the last few years, yeah. Absolutely, thank you. Um, it's on Amazon, Nowhere to Run. Um, I always tell folks to type in my name as well uh, for that, but um, really, quick about that it's it's you will rarely ever see me market it or anything like that because when i was going throughout my therapeutic process uh earlier on my therapist said he said look i can tell that you're really struggling with opening up um i know that this is not something that you are familiar with just given your background right with playing in a very violent sport that's just not what we do and so he said how about you just journal just write, write some things down. And of course I was like, write what? And he was like, anything. And I just got to writing and I really would get into these moments of, of it was almost like a meditation hmm. where I was just, it was just me in the paper. And I, once I looked up, I had 88,000 words. Um, <laughs> and I, of course, right, teamed up with uh, an editor, right? Just because I can, write a few paragraphs doesn't mean I'm a writer. Um, right. And they helped me out throughout the process. And so my book, Nowhere to Run, um, Discovering Your, Your True Self, right, it, is, is in, a, in the midst of an addiction, excuse me, is a moment, a time for me where I was able to just let it out, right? Just a therapeutic process of, of, of what all happened, putting all my feelings out there and not caring about the judgment that is to come. Um, and so I encourage so many other people to to figure out what your path is towards recovery. Mine was therapy and journaling. I'm a huge advocate on both. I know that there are a million ways up that hill, but those were mine. And so as you go about reading my book, um, I do talk about it all from being a young child to being on section eight with my, with my parents um, to high school, obviously college and the NFL and even afterwards. Um, and, and I just encourage a lot of people who may be struggling with things that they're struggling with to, to get a copy, to get a copy, because um, just like what you shared, it's, it's, you don't have to be an Heisman finalist. You don't have to be a second round draft pick. My message is addiction does not discriminate. Okay. It does not discriminate. And for those eight years of my life, when I was actively using, 
I was always telling myself I wasn't going to be that one. It's not going to get me. It's not going to get me. Well, it stuck up on me. Mm. Well, Monte, I'm just, uh, I just want to thank you again for joining us today. I, I, uh, I'm glad we got to make this work out. Um, took a, took a minute, um, (laughs) but we got it. And, uh, I'm just really grateful. Um, and so I'm going to, uh, sign us out now. Um, uh, Thank you all for joining us on our episode today. Thank you, Chris, as well yeah. for uh, co-hosting. Um, please follow us on uh, Facebook, um, Instagram, TikTok, I think we have still. Podcast. Our podcast, Spotify. yeah, wherever your podcast. And uh, with that, we are out. <laughs> <laughs>